0: And welcome back to Diversity Be Like. It's Sequoia. And we're here again this week talking about the nuances of diversity and seeking understanding for what true inclusion, equity, and respect looks like. I'm here with my guest, Dr. Aparadita Jirigunsa. Dr. Jirigunsa is the founder and CEO of AJ Rao LLC, a boutique firm that specializes in providing custom solutions for intentional inclusion. She's also the founder of the Leg Upward Institute, a digital platform that offers leadership training as well as personal and professional development. Welcome, Dr. Gidi Gunta.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you.
0: Likewise. So one of the things that we talked about when we first got on the call is making sure we were pronouncing each other's name correctly. And I thought that was so funny because I did spend <laughs> some time making sure that I was getting it right. And I appreciate you doing the same. I know that that can be considered a microaggression, right? For some people when they don't pronounce your name correctly. And I have a lot of, like with my clients, they'll say, Oh, is there something else I can call you? And it's like, No, you can call me Sequoia. <laughs> hmm. Do you ever have experiences like that? Or do you ever feel, have any times where you felt like you needed to? change your name to make it more palatable for people you're working with? Yes. And so I have an interesting
1: learning moment about that. Right. So in college, I did, of course, want to fit in. And so and especially in grad school, you become as you're going through that process of becoming the so-called in air quotes expert on on your field of study or in your field of study, rather. And uh, so I, I did change my name or have a nickname, AJ. And so I, everybody started calling me AJ and I was completely okay with that to the point where even my parents started calling me AJ and they just said, man, this is just so much simpler. And I, I was sitting there kind of tongue in cheek, like, why would you name me such a long name if you're just going <laughs> to call me AJ? So it turned into a running joke. And every time I used that, it did rub me the wrong way a little bit internally in the sense of there was a notion that I had to kind of give people permission to use that nickname. And at the same time, there was this understanding that I created the nickname to fit in when people can say Tchaikovsky and Dostoevsky (laughs) "Dostoevsky," and all of like those kind of names without any problem, then where really is the problem to at least try to learn? to say my name. So then for a little bit, I stopped using AJ. However, I've recently started using it again because as my journey in intentional inclusion, and especially uh, when it comes to accessibility for those who are visibly or invisibly disabled, and a part of that population does include people with Cognitive processing disabilities, learning disabilities, as well as uh, speech impediments. Okay. Somebody from that speech impediment community actually reached out and said, Thank you so much for making your nickname because
0: it does not put me on the spot. I think that's an important perspective as well. Yeah. (laughs) I hadn't thought about it like that. So,
1: yeah, right. Neither had I. And I was kind of all caught up in all my feels like, oh, this doesn't feel right. And then the second that that person said that, I mean, of course, I was transparent and I said I didn't do it for that reason. However, that's actually a good reason now for me to continue using that nickname. So I recently started giving people the option of they can either call me Aparajita or they can call me AJ, whatever is more comfortable for them to be able to fully engage in the conversation with me. That's fantastic.
0: I feel like my name, I'm named after Tree and there's a Toyota Sequoia. And there, you know, I feel like there are so many different things that are named Sequoia. And it's, it feels like sometimes it feels like people see that I'm a Black girl and I have a Q in my name. And (laughs) they just decide that it's too hard to say without even trying. And so that gets interesting. But that is a fantastic perspective. I'm so glad you shared that because I hadn't thought of it in in that way either. Yeah. So let's get started. Tell me a little bit about the work that you do and how you got started in diversity. Absolutely. So that's a it's
1: the journey of my whole life in so many ways. I'm going to try and consolidate that (laughs) as uh, best as I can. So I am an Indian immigrant and I identify as a cisgender woman. I grew up in India till I was about 14 years old. So grew up in what we know is a culture that is in many ways vastly different from the American culture, especially when it sort of comes to the importance of group dynamics over the individual. Mm. And then you layer that on to the patriarchal expectations of women. And then I became an immigrant in America. And I remember the first time I was called a minority, I was 14 years old in high school when I first started high school, because until then I had been in a country of people who somewhat sort of looked like me. Right. And so the first time I got called a minority by some, and it was a person, uh, you know, it was a teacher, school official kind of a person I literally just looked around and I was like, is it because I'm short? (laughs) Because I didn't even understand it. Like, what Uh, does that even mean? Yeah. I was like, what do you mean by minority? Like, I truly did not grasp what that meant. So that was my first kind of exposure to it. And it was really interesting to have then have the person who later ended up being my best friend, a Black woman, explain to me what minority meant. And I was like, oh, well, that's odd. Why not just call me Indian?
0: (laughs) You know, what's funny though, is that a lot of times when you're American, you feel, because of the history that is from here, it feel, you feel guilty for calling someone Indian or calling someone Mexican or calling someone anything that Chinese or Asian or whatever. And I think that that's such a interesting dynamic because there is this beauty in celebrating different cultures. But how can we get to that point of celebration if we can't even call it what it is either? Exactly. Exactly. And I'm so glad you raised that
1: point because that's what it was for me. I was an immigrant, right? And going through a formal education system that we know does not teach real history in Mm -hmm. so many ways, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially the real history of the black communities here in the U S and I mean, some textbooks even saying the idea of slavery being something that slaves wanted. I mean, just getting into. Right.
0: The (sighs) transatlantic trade. And they they called it something else recently in a textbook that made it seem like it was something that was so beneficial to African-American people. Like it was a a voyage. Like we came over here on a cruise ship.
1: (laughs) Exactly. 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 So. I wasn't exposed to any of that because I certainly didn't learn that in India. They taught us Indian history in India. And so going through that whole journey and then and then I had two traumatic brain injuries, which changed the course of my life. I I was a stereotypical Indian pre-med student until I had my traumatic brain, no, my first traumatic brain injury, which It changed my life so much and it changed because of my focus, problems with focus, attention. Mm. But in addition to all of that, this real realization that I was going on that path because it was expected of me, not because that's what I wanted to do. Oh, wow. So, and unpacking all of that helped me realize what I wanted to do was understand real history and understand how that then relates to how we interact as groups now. So a large part of my journey into diversity, equity, inclusion and belongingness was really me trying to understand where do I fit into this tapestry? What is the power of my voice and where is the most effective use of my voice? And where can I amplify other voices without taking away from them? And where do I have to stand up to use my voice towards all of this? Right. So it was really this journey of self-discovery in many ways. And as I learned about things and then the second traumatic brain injury happened and that one, I actually died for a little bit. And so when I came back. Yeah. And so when I came back, I had. No idea who I was. And I had to rebuild myself from scratch, which in retrospect, was the biggest blessing in that I could have ever gotten in the world. I mean, it was excruciating to go through, right? I can so imagine, I can, yeah. So I can only say this in retrospect, like eleven years later. But really having to go through all of that and then seeing where I fit in into the systems, where I'm reinforcing the systems, and where, I have the unique skill set to sort of throw a wrench in the system right. for positive impact. Uh, that's that's really what my journey
0: has been. That is an incredible journey. And even with, I mean, it puts you at all of these different intersections, right? I mean, one, being a woman, right? Being a woman of color. And I'm not sure if you reference yourself as woman of color or how you reference. So being a woman of color, and then even with the traumatic brain injuries and mentioning some of the cognitive things that happened with that and that placing you at that intersection, it just seems like that would have to impact the work that you do incredibly. Do you find being at this intersection to be an advantage, a disadvantage, maybe a mixture of both? Hmm. I've never
1: been asked that question before, <laughs> ever. It's, it's a really thought-provoking question. I think what's coming up for me, it is definitely, it's a mixture of both. Okay. It, on the one hand, it does, you know, empower me to be able to look at multiple perspectives from using all the intersections, not just in my life, but considering how intersectional my life is to be able to give everybody else, that same kind of grace and benefit of the doubt to be able to understand their intersectionalities and to not see people as this 2D version of just race and gender. Right. Which is often what happens in diversity and inclusion work is we look at race or we look at gender and it's almost considered a step up
0: to look at the cross section of race and gender, but we don't move past that. Right. And then I think we also look at it a lot from a hiring perspective. And that's kind of why I wanted to start the podcast is because you always hear like, oh, hire people of color because it's the right thing to do. And it's like, well, it's it's more than that. And it's more than just me checking off a box of being black or you being Indian. You know what I mean? It's, it's far more than that. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that those are the advantages that it gives me, right? Because I'm able
1: to, it's anytime I talk to another person, that's like on the forefront of my mind is what inter- what are their intersectionalities that they're not showing that I need to be cognizant of, that I need to be respectful of, and that I need to be aware of. and And in so many ways honor because that's what honors them as a whole person, right? It's, it's understanding that they have all of these intersectionalities on the disadvantage side of it. It's almost like there's so many, when you get into so many intersectionalities and people sort of expect you to get into lanes and you're like, well, I'm sort of in between eight lanes, right? <laughs> um, I'm not sure how to easily fit into your box.
0: Yes. So that's a little bit of a problem. Yes, I completely understand that perspective. I think of it makes me think of of feminism, right? And how there's this complaint in the black community about feminism and how it wasn't made for black women and how black men want us to be black first, white women want us to be <laughs> women first. And then we find ourselves trying to figure out how to make it all work and how to also still cater to our own very unique needs. And so, yeah, it, it's an interesting place to be. <laughs> it really is. And I think that that example you brought up is
1: great, right? Because You and I, like, we can't separate that. Those of us who have the intersectionalities, like, don't ask us to rank our intersectionalities. They all make us who we are. And so especially for a recent example that happened is part of it is also because, yes, even as a traumatic brain injury survivor, I did all of the work I needed to do to relearn how to be articulate again and to be able to have a voice and use my voice towards this positive impact, right? So I often get, and this actually happened, the the most recent example happened very recently on Clubhouse app, actually, where somebody reached out to me and said that they absolutely can't believe that I have, that I manage invisible disabilities because I sound so normal and articulate. Oh, wow. And it was almost like they were trying to, they were trying.
0: It's a compliment really in their minds.
1: Well, and <laughs> I think they were trying really hard to kind of poke at me to see where the scam in there is. And it's like, mm. there's no scam there. But what I can tell you is you don't know enough about the TBI population if you think that I'm
0: somehow an anomaly. Right, right. Right. There are, I, I've noticed over the last, I want to say just the last week, and it might be because, you know, how you see something and then now your mind is starting to, to recognize it everywhere. I've seen TBI so many places just in the last week or so. And it, it, it kind of is mind blowing. Like you said, where I, areas that I never would have thought, oh, you know, and it just, it, it's an interesting thing, but I think that there's <laughs> It kind of goes back to the idea of microaggression. It's like, oh, you're so well-spoken and you're so this. And it's like, well, what do you expect me to be? Why can't I be well-spoken? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) One thing that I found really interesting about your work is that it seems to center around the idea of empowering the person from the diverse perspective to make their voice heard rather than simply focusing on trying to get the dominant culture to understand inclusiveness and let us in. What made you decide to take that path as opposed to trying to push that door down to let us in? <laughs> oh, that's that's a great question. And again, nobody's
1: ever asked me that question. So it's but this one I've actually thought about because it's my big why. Okay. Right? So it goes back to our place as an individual in society that has systems and systemic structures, right? Systems and systemic structures are meant for a level of automation, a level of like a well-oiled machine. You Mm -hmm. do A, B, and C, you get to D, E, F, G, like boom, 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 step-by-step, like just follow the formula and that's all you need to do. Part of that then requires conditioning programming, right? Just like a computer program for us to For a computer program to say two plus two equals four, there is a level of programming that needs to happen. Same thing with us. Where do our beliefs come from? Where does our imposter syndrome come from? Where does our confidence come from? Where Where do these tropes, stereotypes, prejudices, all of those come from? They come from the intersection of how the human brain works and then how as a species, We've created these structures that are meant to keep us safe. Right. But who's the us?
0: Right.
1: Right. That's, yeah. yeah. Who's the us and who's the them? Right? Right. And so all of this conditioning happens. Then as people, we internalize that conditioning. And that's where the stories that we tell ourselves start coming in. I can't say that because, and, and this is a, this is an example from, again, from black communities. Well, I can't speak a certain way because I don't want to, then, then immediately people are going to think I'm an the angry black woman trope. Right. <laughs> yep. Right. Or for me as an Indian woman, if I speak up, it's like, aren't you supposed to be like quiet and submissive? Have you ever met
0: me? <laughs> right. Or even on the flip side, what happens a lot of times is when you speak professional, quote, unquote professionally it's, oh, well, you must think you're you're this or you must think you're better than people or something like that. Oh, you sound like a white girl or whatever. And it's like, OK, I, I, I can speak the Queen's English. It's OK. Exactly. But even people who don't speak the quote unquote Queen's English, that's also OK. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm somebody who for the first
1: 14 years spoke the Queen's English and came to this country. Right. Oh, my gosh. People thought I was snobby. And I was like, I grew up in the, in an education system set up by the British in a country that only got its independence less than like 50 years ago. Mm. What are you expecting from me? Right. right. So all of those things, it's created a situation where we've sort of been brainwashed into believing that culture dictates people, that systems dictate people that employees are made for companies when the truth is the exact opposite. The truth of life is the exact opposite. People dictate culture. People build the systems, right? People change the systems and companies are made for people, not the other way around. Right. So to beat that, the only solution I saw was to empower the individual to help them realize that truth, you weren't made for that. That was made for you,
0: but not you, because it doesn't benefit you. Right, right. It's interesting. I think about, um, I used to work for this organization that was a, a non an association for HR professionals. And I remember being in a training session that they had on a Friday, or no, I think it was on a Saturday or something like that. And I went just because I worked at the main office and I was just going to support our members. And they had a session on LinkedIn and how to set up your LinkedIn profile and how to be make sure that you're a superstar, rock star or whatever they, they say on LinkedIn. And they were saying that you should have a photo of yourself and that if you don't have a photo, that's really bad. And people think you have something to hide and they won't hire you. And that was their only perspective. And of course, I'm the only person. I'm the only little chocolate child in the, in the room, as I say. And so I once again had to raise my hand and say, hi, guys. Just wanted to offer a different ex- perspective. For a lot of people of color, we don't put photos or we don't feel comfortable putting photos because there's a feeling that people might discriminate against you and not hire you simply because you are a person of color. And the look on everyone in the room's face was as if I had said something they had never thought about ever. And they probably hadn't because they didn't have to. Right. But it was really interesting. The response I got after they took a second to digest it, it was like, well, but why would you want to work for a company like that anyway? And I was like, you're missing the point. (laughs) You don't get it. That's the
1: privilege of having privileged blind spots. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. And these people work in HR. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah you recently hosted a conversation about the pros and cons and expectations on cultural competence, right? And so it kind of leads into this. So can we talk a bit about that? And first, how do you define cultural competence?
1: This is, this is, I'm so glad where I'm going on record finally saying this because this point was actually brought up in several other conversations. So um, thank you for giving me the space and the platform to actually finally officially put it on record of how, <laughs> absolutely. It. how you I heard it here it.
0: first, folks.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. So for me, a lot of people look at cultural competence and they sort of it's two components, right? Like uh, and then there's two main questions there. What is culture and what is competence? And if you look at the technical definitions of culture, I mean there are a dozen scientific definitions of culture going. And again, depending on whether you go into, I mean, we could make this a completely academic conversation and I could spend the next 30 minutes going into all the definitions of culture. That's how much culture has been studied in social sciences, whether it's in social psychology, cultural psychology, cultural anthropology, etymology, epistemology, like like across the board, right? And heck, even going into economic theories. Uh, So there is that aspect of it. And then there's a competence aspect, which if you look in the dictionary is this level of like proficiency or mastery or whatever. To me, all of those definitions by definition are already whitewashed. Okay. In the sense of those who came up with, because language is what we make of it, right? Like we give language meaning. Right. So Somebody sat there and said, this is what culture is and this is what competence is. And the competence means mastery, right? For me, competence means the act of practicing it. Okay. Okay. The act of practicing the act of progress, which takes your personal accountability into which into as a factor. So when I talk about cultural competence and culture is what you make of it. Right again this could be like a whole dissertation theory thing which part of my dissertation was on this but as it turns out your culture and your identity are so deeply intertwined and when you look at the concept of self right there's five layers the innermost like the deepest layer is called the core core okay. self which is your identity which is like your personality and all of that as it turns out it doesn't stop there That core has seven more layers of identity in it. Oh, wow. So it gets like it gets what we thought we knew about this wasn't even the tip of the iceberg.
0: Right. You're not even scratching the surface. (laughs) mm -mm. Nope.
1: Nope. So coming from that perspective, ultimately, culture is what you choose to express in a nutshell. Right. And culture is what you choose to express about yourself, but also what you choose to acknowledge about the other person. Okay. Which ties into yourself. It's that interactive piece, right? So it's very dynamic. It's constantly evolving. When you talk about competence being practice as opposed to mastery. Okay. What that then boils down to is just four simple things. In order to be able to practice something, one, you have to be aware of it. Okay. Right? If, like, if you want to pick up a new habit, the awareness of that habit or in the why of it and the what of it is the first step. Okay. Then being sensitive. So, sensitivity, right? Understanding that that habit is different than your current habit. The third one is humility. Okay. Right. Understanding that practicing this new habit is not going to take anything away from you, take anything positive away from you, that it's going to add to the positivity while removing some of the negativity. Okay. And you really need to come from a space of humility to put your ego aside to learn something. Right. Right. Yeah. Once you have the awareness, the sensitivity and the humility, that's when you can then be responsive in your actions. Okay. I like that. I like that. As you practice those four steps, you make progress in your competence. I love it.
0: I I love that idea. I'm really glad I asked you that question because I think that's so great. And I think that I look forward to taking a class and, and learning more and, and sharing that with the audience too. Mm-hmm. So I think that is such a great thing to talk about. You talked about pros and cons of expectations on cultural competence. So what would you say were pros and cons of that? Oh gosh. So I li- in retrospect, maybe the title was a little bit of a clickbait okay. without me realizing
1: it. In that I wanted to hear from people on what they thought are the pros and cons of cultural competence. Right. So what I can share with you are some of the insights that I got, because if you asked me for my personal perspective, there is no con to cultural competence. (laughs) Right. But also because I define it in such a very specific, definitive way. But I also knew that this was a term, a phrase that was so loaded with people's personal perspectives that I just wanted to hear, like, when you hear this, What do you even think of? What are the pros and cons of it? Just to kind of get an understanding of where people are thinking. So one of the, of course, the pros, the the positives that I got from it is that understanding cultural competence and developing cultural competence is going to help us, going back to what I said earlier, be able to see each other a little bit more as whole human beings, understanding the intersectionalities, understanding... The multitude of layers there are to most people. Okay. And also being able to understand that part of culture, we have to, again, go past that race and gender. Toodiness into cognitive diversity, into socioeconomic diversity, right. educational diversity, geographical diversity, which then gets into accents and all of those other things. Yes, the cons, right? So and so so those were some of the great positives that came out of that in terms of understanding cultural competence will help us really just navigate in any sort of group environment as while still being authentically us Mm -hmm. also empowering others to be authentically themselves. Right. Okay, And then also opening up that space for like vulnerable sharing, right. Which creates trust and connection and belongingness and just loads of great stuff.
0: So it's such a personal journey. It's it's doing the work, right. Doing a lot of self-work to get there. Absolutely. On the flip side of it, there
1: is. So the cons that I got were a couple of things. One is, and then I fully, fully accept these. Those are not in my framework. I wasn't expecting people to take it there, but now I know I have to sort of be able to address that. Like you can't dictate somebody else to be culturally competent, right? Mm-hmm. At some level, it's a cross, like a cross of capability versus interest. What if somebody just doesn't want to be culturally competent? They just don't want to do the work. And then they got into, well, again, what does competence even mean? Is that really like a whitewash term that you're trying to put on us to minimize my perspective, to minimize my voice? Because if I don't operate in the way you think I ought to, then you're telling me I'm not competent.
0: I think that's one thing that you hear a lot when you have these conversations around diversity and bias, right? How much of it is us? I don't know. I don't really even know how to frame that question, right? How much is the, of it is me saying, how relevant or how meaningful is it if I say, hey, this bothers me when you do this? It makes me feel like you think that I am less than just because of this, right? do I have the right to say that? Which I feel like I do because I feel like as a human being, I have a right to say that. And I feel like as a human being, the person that I'm telling that to has, I don't want to say a responsibility to me, but for lack of a better word, of a responsibility to at least listen, to at least say, okay, I didn't, it wasn't my intention to make you feel that way. Or, you know, hey, I'm mindful of the fact that it makes you feel that way. So in the future, I won't do that. But I think we get stuck at this impasse because, someone tells you, Hey, I feel this way. And what you did made me feel this way. And the other person says, well, I have a right to do that. And then it just, we get stuck there and then there that's, there's no movement and there's no progression.
1: Yeah, I agree. And so in my, in that very, very specific and definitive framework that I laid out, that's not even competence, right? Mm -hmm. Because if somebody is saying, well, it, like, for instance, if you're telling me, what you said was hurtful to me. And if I get defensive, automatically, I'm not being sensitive or humble, right? So forget competence. Now we're talking ego, right? You're back, you there. know, yeah, exactly. but and 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 at the same time, I think so that's what this framework really allows, right? Like I think there is a space for us to be able to share our perspective and voice our concerns. And that is absolutely necessary. And I think it is on the part of the both the sender of this message and the receiver of this message, without like this, this is a there's an, the burden doesn't fall on either. You know what I right. mean? Yeah. It's almost like the burden falls on the situation and the context yes. and the outcome you want out of it. Right. Because if one person just wants to be able to vent then that's a completely different outcome than if somebody, if both parties want a solution. So it is very outcome oriented in terms of how you can, how to address it. For instance, like after that conversation, Sequoia actually, and because of some of the language that I used in there with the indigo rooms and like, you were a part of that, like the idea of my space is being intentionally anti-racist, anti-transphobic, anti-ableist, or anti-anything that diminishes or demeans a human perspective. Right. And then I followed that up with, please be respectful. And if you're about to talk about something that could be triggering, please say trigger sensitive and be respectful. There's time and space for all of us. The combination of that, in retrospect, I see the combination of that. There were some people who took it to say that, oh, I'm not allowed to share my perspectives. Mm. Right. And there were whole conversations that happened about that. And I got called in in the middle of meetings. I was like literally in the middle of a meeting and I got so many pings saying this room's about you get in. And you know how that goes on Mm -hmm. Mm Clubhouse. Yeah. And I was like, okay, like wrapped up my meeting, got in. Yes. And it ended up like the the whole situation. It wasn't for me. It wasn't anything that wasn't warranted. The second I got in within 30 seconds, I could tell, oh, man, I hurt somebody.
0: Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to. At that point, it was it had nothing to do with me. And that's a level of emotional intelligence that I just wish more people had. Right. That they were just able to say, you know what? It's not about me as a person. It's about this is the situation. How can I improve this situation? Not as a a reflection of me, but how can I improve this particular situation? How can I make this other human being feel better? Because I have done something, regardless of whether it was my intention or not, I have done something to negatively impact their experience. And exactly. I wish more people would get there.
1: <laughs> impact is always going to be greater than your intent or your intention, right? Exactly. At the end of the day, the impact is what is measurable. Your intent and your intention, as glorious as they may be, can take a sidestep, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> because it, you could come in with, you and I both know the most well intentioned people in our lives and in our communities who come from such a place of love. Right. And they say things that immediately derail us. Right. And we're like, ah, oh, did I have to talk to that person right now? <laughs> right. So, so I'm, again, I'm super, super hyper aware of that. So when I went into the space and I realized that I realized it's not about me. It's about what I did. Right. And I have to take accountability for what I did. It was my room. And so I went, I immediately apologized and I said, you know what? I'm not going to sit here and defend myself. I'm not. I have no excuses. There is one, there's only one thing I'm going to say. And that's about the nature of this language and why it was used in this way. I will still receive feedback for that. I did not create that language. I am testing it out for the creators. With this feedback, I'm going to take it back to them. For the rest of it, I am going to go sit in the audience, take notes, learn and make whatever changes I can. And and, and I was I was there for the entire three hours taking notes, listening, understanding exactly what the problems with cultural competence was, which was, again, the con of it. Right. That cultural competence at the end of the day is just a tool. Right. And as a tool, it can be used for good or harm.
0: Right. Right. I think that's a really important lesson. And I love the fact that even though you, I don't want to say you didn't feel wrong, you didn't feel wrong for what you did. Right. But you were conscious of the fact that what you did or what you said, or the conversation that you started had an impact and you received that for exactly what it was in that situation. (laughs) I think that's such an important point. And I hope that someone listening can hear that and can know that just because someone says, hey, I'm offended by this, that doesn't mean that you are a bad person. That doesn't mean that they're saying anything negatively about you, but it does mean that as a human being, it would be great if you can take that piece of what they're saying and say, okay, I own the piece that I did, even if it wasn't my intention. And I am going to try to now work towards making it better for that person in the same way that you would hope that they would make it better for you if this, you were on the other foot. I love that.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And I think you actually hit on a a really important, like underlying point there, right? In terms of this kind of a situation for anybody listening to this, when, and I'm going to use a very stark example. Especially in the US given everything all the ways in which we've been 2020 and now 2021. <laughs> we're not even at the end of the first month. Like that whole thing. Yeah. And 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 especially after the murders, the very public murders of Maud Arbery and you know, Mr. George Floyd and 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 Tony McDade and 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 Brianna Taylor. I mean, oh my gosh, Brianna right. Taylor. When people were called out on it in in their privilege, people took it very personally. Right, and there was this huge counter movement because Black Lives Matter movement has been technically going on for four hundred years, and then it 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 sort of became an official hashtag movement after Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, and right. it's just. Countless number of people back in like, what was it, 2013, 2014, right. mm-hmm. something like that. And then it got recatalyzed in 2020 with all of this happening in the middle of a social, in the middle of a health pandemic and global right. crisis that disproportionately affected Black and Brown communities. Like, so many layers in there. And so, for anybody listening to this who were when all of these happened, Uh, Got defensive when our privilege was called out. Our privilege is not two-dimensional. There are so there are as many layers to our privilege as there are intersectionalities to yes. our identity.
0: Yeah, there is, right? that's a whole conversation. And we can have a whole other episode about just that. And maybe we should <laughs> at some point, <laughs> but that that's a, that is a whole word. <laughs> yeah. And it's so, it was interesting to me to see like how so many people were
1: coming out and saying like, oh my God, I'm not racist. And it's like, nobody called you a racist. Right, okay. <laughs> we're saying you're perpetuating Systemic racism
0: is still valid, right? And I don't it's think it's not an either or, right? I don't think people really understand that you impact. Like, I have a friend. I say friend because I know him from college, and we we butted heads a lot in college, and we are on totally different ends of the spectrum, right? I <laughs> he he's always he's a, a starch Republican, he through and through. He was a Trump supporter. He does believe that the election was taken for whatever. But what I found interesting was that I remember this summer he posted something about it was in, uh, when the, the protests were happening in Atlanta and things were getting smashed up and set on fire and things like that. And he made this post on Facebook about how if you are setting things on fire, you're just doing too, that's where I draw the line and you're doing too much and just really chastising people about that. Right. When we look at yesterday being MLK Day, and this will this will um, post after that, but when he says riots or the the protests yeah. are the voice or yeah. the voice of the unheard, that's how the unheard share their voice, right? And so, to me, it was interesting to see him say that. But right when we look at what happened on the Capitol, he was quiet. He said nothing, mm-hmm. and I made a point to bring it up to him to say, "Oh, it's really interesting." That you made such a big deal out of this, but this happened, and you said nothing. Why was that? And he didn't. His answer was, "Oh, well, I decided I was going to be less political this year, and I wasn't going to share things online." And it was like, oh, that's, "That's convenient." <laughs> it's it, it took convenient. the words right out of my mouth. Very, very convenient. So, yeah, I don't. I wish people would understand how that looks and how that, you know what I mean? I don't think people understand. I don't think people understand what that what that means, right? And, and yeah. their actions and how their actions are really a reflection of their inner thoughts and all of that and what we see. Yeah. That said, I have another question. <laughs> yeah. So from my perspective, I think that this whole idea of diversity, equity, inclusion, respect, and you also say belonging, which I love, and I will start adding that. As well when I have these conversations, that it's a journey, right? And I think that it's this journey from bias, which is where we start, to tolerance on to understanding through acceptance, and then finally to celebration. And I don't know that this is a linear journey, but I, I do think that it's a journey. And so as you see the different things that you you work on and the different people that you talk to in your spaces. Where would you say that as a society we are along this journey if you had to place us somewhere? Overall, mm-hmm. not in a good
1: place. Okay. Within that, certain pockets of various communities, I think. And this is why I say we're not in a good place because so here's what's happening. And this happens in any group dynamics. And it's Mm the nature, it's human nature again. And I'm not saying that as an excuse. I'm saying that to build awareness that for this movement toward belongingness, which is also human nature, by the way, for that to truly come about, there are other parts of our nature that we actively have to counter. Okay. so let me take a step back. The need to belong is a human drive. It is a drive that dictates our survival, like dictates our existence as much as survival does. Okay. There are studies of this where when human beings grow up in isolation, when they're like locked up and like, these are horrible, horrible clinical studies. We see the effect of the lack, lack of belongingness on their life trajectory. So we know that the need to belong is a human imperative. Okay. Right. And we know we have cognitive biases. Our brains, the way they're Structured the way they work, because of how much energy it takes for us to process information. And I'm talking about processing information even before we went into the information overload age, right, Where now it is there's too much information, yes, right, right. Our brains are have always been cognitive misers and have always taken shortcuts. That's where biases come in. Biases are nothing but shortcuts. It's when we it's when certain when we feel a certain way about a bias. Right. And then we start taking action on how we feel a certain way about that's what turned them into prejudice and then discrimination. Right. So stereotyping and biases are just as much of a part of human nature as the need to belong is.
0: So bias in your perspective, if I am hearing you correctly, bias inherently is not right or wrong. It's just a way for us to quickly assess information. Yeah. It's the action that's taken from the bias that is then right or wrong. Exactly.
1: Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Because all these trainings that say they're gonna like get rid of your bias, that no, no, you can't because your brain doesn't work that way. Right. What you can do is counteract those thoughts with other thoughts so that your actions, so that your attitudes your feelings, and then your actions are not discriminatory and there are, are not harmful to another person because bias, I mean, the whole like, oh my gosh, Indians are so smart and they're all doctors and engineers. That's a <laughs> positive stereotype. Right. But when you act on that in a certain type of way, when it makes you feel a certain type of way and you act on that, that's when it becomes problematic.
0: When right? I, as a teacher, treat you as if you don't need extra help because, oh, she's smart. She exactly. She's smart because she's.
1: You're you know. Indian. You're, you're good at math. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Lovely. Or you're Indian. You're more like math and science inclined. Why do you need to take an art class? Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's really where all of this comes in. And so that's when I say that overall. We are not doing well, is because another part of this whole group dynamics thing is that when we think as groups and communities, a couple of things happen. One is called groupthink, we tend to conform to the overall consensus. And the second is social loafing. We don't take responsibility for our own thoughts because now somebody else is giving us uh. this. Yeah, 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 I just thought that because so-and-so who's like a great, like, da-da-da-da, I follow them on YouTube or TikTok or blah, 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 blah. And how can they be, you know, all of these justifications. Right. These two things tie into the biases. They tie into the prejudice. They make us cognitively lazier than we should be.
0: Gotcha. That's, I love that. I think that's a fantastic point. And so that's something that I'm going to go back and and chew on a bit. So that's, I hadn't really thought about it in that way. And that's the thing that I love about these conversations is that I've had a few now. And so even conversations with friends who I, when I looked at what they were doing, people that I know, and I brought on the show, I thought they were actively trying to fight bias, right? And they were actively trying to do the work on diversity. And they're like, I'm not trying to fight anything. I just know there's a problem. I found a solution to the problem. Like, I'm not even going to worry about bias because it doesn't make any sense to do that. So it's really interesting. So So on the group level, just to close that up,
1: what's happening to tie it with your point is there's those few people who are now becoming little nodes, right? Like little centers, Mm -hmm. but everyone around them, everyone in between, all of us need to be these nodes. We can't pass up that personal responsibility, that personal accountability and the inner work that we individually have to do to any sort of, well, they're doing the work. They'll tell me what I need to do. No, no. And that's overall why we are still not making too much real progress right because we know on both sides people are just following the quote unquote leaders the leaders are saying we're not even fighting this we just saw a problem and we're addressing right. the solution <laughs> and so there's, there's ultimately what that means is there's a lack of clarity confusion and no individual wants to take that personal accountability so they end up becoming bystanders
0: right
1: right oh yeah
0: so let me ask you another question (laughs) yeah when people think of the work that you do when they think of AJ Rao when they think of your learning platform what do you want your organization's lasting legacy to be making the invisible visible for better equity
1: and belongingness
0: okay yeah when people think of Dr. Jidigunta, Gunta what do you want your lasting legacy to be
1: somebody who helped you make your invisible visible for your equity and belongingness.
0: I love it. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been, it's been eye-opening for me and I've learned a lot through this. So thank you. Where can people reach out to you and how can we support the work that you do? Thank you, thank you. So I am
1: finally, I, I think I have gotten enough requests that I'm going to be putting out some primers and courses and trainings and educational materials on all of this. I haven't done that (laughs) yet on the individual level because my work is so high touch and one-on-one that I sort of never, I sort of shied away from the self-paced learning group aspect of it. But I'm at a point where I'm getting so many requests that I can't individually fulfill all of them. So, gotcha. so uh, the, the, those are going to come out. If you're listening to this, and if you're happen to be on Clubhouse, my handle there is at Doctor AJ, and I practically live there, as you know. So, <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I do enjoy the conversations on there. Other than that, I think the best way to just get in touch with me is my Instagram, which is at Doctor AJ J D Gunta, and uh, just DM me. And let me know like what you need and how I can support you. Because again, at the end of the day, this is about empowering each individual person to help them understand, to help you understand and help them help all of us understand that. Yes, we have societal rules. Yes, we have systems. Yes, we have all of this. And we get to be individually empowered to make small, small, tiny, 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 tiny changes Whose collective impact can be amplified for positive progress. And at the end of the day, that positive progress for me, for my personal sort of ledgers or books or whatever, Mm -hmm. the more number of people from historically marginalized communities that I can help in supporting them. To make themselves more visible, to be able to negotiate their true worth, to be able to step outside of these tropes and show themselves as leaders and to demand what their true value is without being underpaid, without being overworked, without being underappreciated or being expected to work for freaking free.
0: Right. Like, mm, no, 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 no. So when Mm. you get those different pieces that you're creating... Please let me know. And I will just put a link to it on the show notes page for this episode so that people can reference it. So please, please, Thank please you. let me know when you have that.
1: Thank you. And I apologize for going off on that like last no. little rant because I get so passionate about that part of it that I'm just like, ah. <laughs> no,
0: no, you're great. You're great. Well, folks, that is it. We have just wrapped another episode of Diversity Be Like. If you want to keep in touch with us, please check us out online. You can reach us on your favorite social media networks, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at at Diversity Be Like. You can also shoot us an email if you want at podcast at M-O-C-H-A, stock, S-T-O-C-K.com. Also, feel free to join the conversation on your favorite social network using hashtag Diversity Be Like. And we will see you later. Thank you so much for having me again. Thank you.